Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. This is such a pleasure because we are doing a show remotely, and we have our guest Zooming in. Um, It's been another great day for Apex here on SU's campus, and you're listening, as you heard, to KSU Thunder 91.1. Today, I am joined by Dr. Bonnie Clark, who is an archaeologist, anthropologist, and a great studier of the Colorado landscape. She gave a wonderful presentation earlier, and we're going to talk more about it. So welcome into the studio, Dr. Clark. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the radio. That's so cool. I think that you said earlier, this might be one of your first or few first radio experiences. Well, I I have to say I was interviewed for Colorado Public Radio um, a couple of times, but you know, that's not live. So it is a a different experience. And it, it didn't intersperse it with, you know, like, you know, hits like, if you like pina colada. (laughs) That's right. That was the song that was playing just now. And it was really fun. So well, to get started, Dr. Clark, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what you do. And of course, um, the the big project that you've really been dedicating your life and your research to over the last few years. So I am a historical archaeologist. So I do the same things that other archeologists do. So I go out in the middle of nowhere and we walk around and we look for the physical evidence of people's behavior. And um, sometimes we might open up excavation units and and dig through the dirt to find that. And sometimes we're looking up on like, you know, cliff walls to look for rock art. Um, So I do all the same things that other archeologists do, but I do them for more recent time periods when we also have written records. And, um, and right now I've, my project, I've, I've moved so far into the present that I've, um, I'm working on a site where I have survivors. Um, so I uh, work at the site of the Japanese American incarceration camp in southeastern Colorado. Um, and so I have the absolute privilege of being able to work with people who remember their time in that camp as well as the descendants of people who were there. So that adds this whole new twist to archaeology and makes it a lot, a little closer to one of the other um, branches of uh, anthropology, which is uh, cultural anthropology or ethnography. Right. So how did you get in, not specifically to this project, but even to archaeology in general? I'm always curious. I mean, were you somebody who was kind of excavating in your backyard and digging around or, or just a, was there some incident or how did, how did you get drawn as a young person to this work? You know, I, I am in many ways a sort of accidental archaeologist. I mean, I think like a lot of people I used to, you know, my brother and I used to hide things for each other in the sandbox and they would dig them up and that was kind of fun. Um, 
but uh, I had a very kind of different path when I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Utah. And um, I kind of bounced around between a couple of different majors. And um, I just happened to sort of stumble on anthropology and really loved it. Uh, but I was kind of drawn more to the cultural anthropology side of things. Although I did, you know, it take a couple of archaeology classes and I really enjoyed them. And then um, when I graduated in 1990, there was a big pipeline project that uh, was passing actually it, it, um, the Kern River Pipeline. It came very near Cedar. We spent some time living in Cedar with the crews. And um, so I, I started doing archaeology because I could get a job. I was being paid. And, um, and it was really in the doing of archaeology that I fell in love with it. And I realized that basically I was getting paid to hike and look for like cool things that people had forgotten about. And um, and then when I learned about historic archaeology, where I could add in that kind of kind of critical look at historic documents as well, I, I was totally sold. Wow, that's so cool. Well, I was just so curious in in hearing some of the talks. I mean, you have to do lots of sketches. You have to um, interact with people a lot socially, and um, I just wondered if you could kind of comment on the skill sets that maybe people don't think of, you know, in terms of archaeological work. I mean, people think of, you know, going and digging, but uh, your work is filled with so much more. Of course that, but also that, I mean, you do a lot of drawing and you do a lot of social interactions. And I, I just wonder about some of those other skills, if you could kind of share the ones that you've learned along the way. Well, I will, um, I will say I'm not much of an artist, um, but I have had to learn how to do scaled drawings, both doing maps and then um, artifact illustrations, you know, just so that I can know what's on there. And I had a, a former student of mine who uh, was working on a project, uh, revisiting some sites that I had recorded back when I was working for Kern River. And she said, I looked down and I realized that you had drawn the map. And I said, was it ugly, but uh, accurate? And she said, yeah. I said, yeah, that's my map. Um <laughs> So, I mean, you don't have to be absolutely perfect at everything. And that's one of the reasons why we work in teams, because then we bring in and we draw from the expertise of other people. Um, uh, so, but, but really kind of, you know, listening and actually learning to take a step back and really kind of listening in an active way and, um, you know, sort of that is really important. And so much of my work is kind of filled with these sort of like a lot of times field stories, things that happen at the time. Um, and so one of the things that is a really important skill is um, that's, I think, important for every kind of um, active learning is that reflective piece. So that is that you, you document, but then you also sort of sit back and think, what did I just see? What does it mean? And um, so when I'm in the field, I always have my field journal with me, but I also, and so I jot things down during the day, but I sit down every night and I write down um, sort of what happened. And then at the end of the week, I do the same thing. I read through the whole week and then I, I do a kind of reflective piece at the end of the week. Wow. And then that also helps me prep for next week. So I like, I, well, the same time I'm um, writing all that down and then I'm writing a list of what I need to be thinking about next week. That's so cool. I never thought of that. Do you do you set aside a block of time? Like, is it kind of part of your schedule to sit down at the end of the week to do that? It is. And um, when I'm doing field work, um, I often do that on the if I can, um, if I'm with somebody else, if I've got like one of my crew chiefs who can drive, 
then I often do that on the drive. Um, And then we're also kind of talking and processing on that too. So that's a really important kind of work time for us. Is that something that, uh, that sort of writing, journaling, tracking, um, is that something that came natural to you? Is that something you kind of had to work into being able to do? Or was it sort of a, a natural thing? Well, I've, I've actually always been a journaler, but um, this is a different kind of journaling um, because, you know, these journals actually, like, they're part of the record at the site. Right. And so I often tell my students, like, don't complain about the person sitting next to you who's digging, you know, like, in your field journal. I don't want to know about that. And the people in the future don't want to know about that. <laughs> um, so if you want to, if you feel that you need to express that, then have a separate journal. So this is, like, your journal about what's going on. Um uh, but the, but it's, you know, journaling is an important part of um, a skill for almost all anthropologists who, and, and I think any field researchers. And so um, I certainly, I learned in part by watching what other people did and, um, and, and really a lot um, kind of teaching other people how to do it. Um, so I do, you know, in many of my classes and not just archaeology classes, but almost all of my classes that have a field or expeditionary learning component, I have my students keep journals. I see. Okay. Well, I'd love to start talking about Amachi. And for anybody listening, can you give us just sort of a few minute, just snapshot, what is and where is Amachi? So um, Amachi is one of the 10 um, uh, confinement sites where the uh, people of Japanese, where families of Japanese ancestry were placed during World War II. Um, There were also some other camps, uh, justice center camps, and those were sort of individual people. But when you you think about families, grandmas and kids, and the whole thing, that happened at these 10 camps. Um, So one of them is Topaz, which is, you know, not quite 200 miles north of Cedar um, out in the desert. And then um, uh, Amachi, is also in the desert, but it's the high Colorado, um, high plains desert. So it's, it's actually, I, I joked with my friends that if they, they need to drive to Kansas and then turn around, um, because it's really only about 12 miles from the Kansas border. Um, and how long it has that big open prairie feeling. And how long were people living there for those who maybe aren't as fresh on their history? How, how long was that place occupied? So, um, people are first sort of getting rounded up in the fall of 1942, just as the U.S. is getting involved in World War II. Um, they, they get to the, the camps in the sometime during the summer, and then they're there until most of them until the end of um, 1945, which is when it became clear that the war was going to be over. And there was um, a woman who's a uh, case before the Supreme Court was brought up and they, she, it was the only one of the cases that actually um, any of the Japanese Americans won. And um, they said that people who were like her conceitedly loyal to the United States could not be held any longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But at first they couldn't go back to the exclusion zone. They couldn't go back to the Pacific coast, which is where they were taken from. Um, So lots of people removed into the middle part of the country and places like Utah and Colorado their Japanese American population rose um, a lot um, because of that. So people had been here, they'd made connections, and they didn't have places, and they um, many of them didn't have any place to go back. Right. Um, so uh, it's a really very Western story, and it's a it's a um, 
and a, and a tough story, right? Um, and it's and one of the questions that people sometimes ask me is, how did I get in, interested in in um, Japanese American history? And and what I have to say is that this is our history. Like we made this together, right? Because if people had stood up for their fellow citizens, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so uh, it's a it's a it's an American. It's a it's a one of our democratic tragedies, and it's one that we have to keep in mind because it's a dangerous precedent. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, it's it, one can't help but make some parallels to some of the things that we see in here even now and worry about the potential um, of repeating this, this horrible thing. So well, I have to say the um, uh, various different um, Japanese American organizations, in particular, the Japanese American Citizens League, um, they are um, like the Anti-Defamation League, they are on the lookout for people who are being scapegoated because they know what that's like and they know how dangerous it is. And so um, like after 9-11, when there was talk about rounding up Muslims, they were very vocal in reminding people that we had done that before and that it was a bad idea. Right. You mentioned the exclusion zone, and I think it's uh, really interesting. Um, Most of the people who were in these camps uh, were in these locations were essentially from the very, very, very Pacific coast, up and down California, Central California as well. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? And also, why were the 10 sites chosen? Um, I know there's some very interesting thoughts and theories behind why those sites. So, um, yeah, so essentially what happened was um, the it was sort of a fight between the Navy and the army and the Navy Naval Naval intelligence after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese military. And they'd actually been kind of, cause there was the Japanese had been at um, involved in a war in Russia. And so they were kind of a, a more of a military force at the time. And um, so they'd been, you know, there was intelligence going on and, and the Navy really noted that um, the Japanese um, immigrants who had chosen to come to the U S and as, and also their um, citizen children, who made up two thirds of that population, um, were were conceitedly loyal, and that they were like they um, did not pose a, a, any kind of security threat. Um, but there were louder voices that had been, you know, kind of building for a long time um, of kind of anti Asian sentiment that things like anti like laws that they couldn't own land. Um, which had been passed in California. And then once it happened in California, it happened in Oregon and Washington. Um, and so, but, but because, you know, the basically, um, you know, there's this concept that a lot of, you know, geographers and, and um, social scientists talk about, which is a, a diaspora, you know, the people who are from a place and who are kind of spread across. So the Japanese diaspora at the time was really a Pacific Rim diaspora. So that's why, I mean, the vast majority of Americans of Japanese descent were living along the rim of the Pacific. And so that's, and then, but then of course there is a closer proximity to the troops and movements um, in the ocean. And so that was this sort of band that was drawn on a map and then everybody had to, um, everybody was rounded up who, who was Japanese ancestry who lived in those, including, you know, like old ladies and um, in one really heartbreaking case, um, uh, kids who were in orphanages, mm. wow, um, who were all put together um, in Manzanar in the children's yeah. village, right, right. And these locations, you know, tend to be 
pretty desert generally and and pretty horrible landscape at first, it seems. Yeah, you know, well, so essentially they needed to be sort of land that wasn't really being used. Um, they needed to be far away from munitions plants or any other kind of um, industry that was related to the war. Um, they needed to be away from any large population centers, but they had to be on railroad lines. Oh, And so they looked and they also they did want them to be at least have land that was productive enough that people could farm and so that they weren't putting a stress. I mean, we were already in a time of food shortage and rationing. And so they wanted these camps to not be too much of a drain um, on the American food supplies. Uh, so those were sort of what they had. And so it was really kind of leftover land, a lot of it. Um, and much of it had been, was generally undeveloped and um, not super habitable. Um, so like in Amachi, down along the Arkansas River, um, which is the valley that it's um, in, um, it, it's, it's pretty good good um, uh, soil uh, and um, they can get water and irrigate it off of the river. But Amachi is, is a little further south on there and it's basically on this giant stabilized sand dune. And so um, it was really only good for anything but but grazing and probably not a whole lot of, you know, <laughs> animals per acre up there. Uh, so it was a, a parcel that they found and they also wanted to spread them out. So, you know, most states, um, with the exception of California, most states only had one if they had a camp at all. So, um, uh, you know, so like Utah has one, Colorado has one, Wyoming has one, Oregon has one, Idaho has one. You know. I see. Cool. Well, that gives us a great kind of landscape to build off of. And it's time for our first musical break. And maybe when we come back, we can get into some more specifics about what your findings have um, led you to there. But first, we have a song. Um, so this song that I'm going to play for you is called All I Need. And it's from an artist called Indigo Sparks. Uh, check it out. See what you think. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Oh 
Well, welcome back, everyone. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1. My name is Lynn Vartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour. I I am joined by Dr. Bonnie Clark, who is an archaeologist and has done her her work most recently at the Amachi facility uh, in Colorado. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how the occupants of that site living there transform their world and how she has been able to find out about all of those stories through her work. So welcome back, Dr. Clark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I would love to know, I mean, I've, I've been hearing a little bit, uh, you know, in the different class visits here and there, but you have just found some amazing things, you know, with regards to the soil, you know, and, and how these Japanese Americans uh, grew gardens, fruits and vegetables, but from this incredibly inhospitable landscape. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about your findings and um, particularly with regard to that, how how those families really transformed that that landscape and that soil. Well, and I will say it was kind of um, the gardens that really drew one of the one of the main things that drew me to the site to begin with. um, When I had read a, a sort of report of some preliminary work that had been done out there. And um, I uh, and and I'm have always been interested in sort of landscape archaeology. So to think about sort of the way that people live in relationship to nature. And so um, the 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 way that those kinds of you know feedbacks happen. And so um, and I knew um, that, you know, 60% of Japanese Americans before World War II made their living growing things. So these are some people with some mad skills, and they had been actually growing in also not very hospitable places in California. They were often in kind of leftover land. Um, and I knew that they'd done things like they were growing celery, and nobody had ever grown celery at a lar- large scale in, in uh, Colorado before. Um, and so... I really, we, um, as we started to set out on the project, I I wanted to keep an eye out for the ways that they were transforming the landscape. Um, One of the main ways is through planting trees because the area was entirely bulldozed. It's the high plains. Trees don't naturally grow up there. Um, But there were, you know, there's thousands of trees up there. And so um, as we started to look at the trees, I would look at the tree and then I would see there's a little ring of rock around it. And I was like, oh, you know what? There's probably other things that are being planted and that, you know, we quickly, it took us a while, but we kind of learned to recognize what these gardens look like um, because they're, you know, a garden 70 years on doesn't always look like a garden. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so there's so many of them that are obvious. And I think that there's a lot more. I mean, we know there are probably thousands of gardens up there and there's probably more. Um 
And so some that are really, you know, we might have like one little rock that doesn't belong there on the surface. And then when we dig, it's like, oh, wow, look, there's this whole garden going on underneath it. Right. Um, and when we do that, um, what we do is this really intensive garden archaeology approach where, um, where I, re- I, I tell my students all the time that the soil out there is an artifact. And what I mean by that is an artifact is something that is either made or modified by humans. So this is not the soil that was there when they showed up because the right. soil that they were there was just sand. It had almost no tr- nutrient value to it. Um, it's not the kind of stuff that is good for growing anything. The water just runs all the way through. And so um, what our, um, our soil uh, chemistry analysis tells us is that there's higher levels of all the kinds of nutrients that are good for growing soils. So there's higher nitrogen, there's higher phosphorus, there's higher organic carbon. There's higher calcium, there's higher iron. And, um, and now not all of them, but we see these numbers and um, it's almost always though higher in these gardens than it is in uh, outside um, areas. And then when we really look at, as both we're excavating very carefully, but also as we are processing the soil and sometimes even just um, in the lab later on, um, what we've discovered are all these little soil amendments like crumbled up eggshell, which adds calcium and also helps to deter pests. Um, we find little pieces of iron slag that we think come from the blacksmith shop. And, um, but I, and I, so I had a student, a, a graduate student who was the one who first identified it. And um, she did some research and concrete, which is what all the barracks were built out of, the barrack um, foundations. Um, the barracks themselves were wooden structures, but the, found, the foundations were concrete. Um, concrete leaches iron out of the soil. So the people who put this iron slag back in knew, and and particularly you want iron rich soil if you're going to grow roses. And we've actually have a lot of rose pollen that we've recovered. And there's one still rose that is hanging on that is still growing out at Amachi. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's so cool. So they just, they found ways to make it work. I mean, what a testament of resilience in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and I have to say, I had a, um, when I first started working on it, I had lots of collaborators um, from, um, again, soil scientists who, who really kind of helped talk me through it. And, and one woman in particular, um, uh, Erica Marin Spriota, who is uh, in the University of Madison, Wisconsin, and she looked at the pictures from the Amachi Agricultural Fair. And she's like, there is no way those people could grow those kinds of crops and flowers and vegetables in this soil if it was not amended. <laughs> right, right, for sure. And one of the other things that I've been fascinated to learn about is you kind of learned um, like what was going on. Uh, I feel like you learned where the hot spots were, or maybe like there was a party zone kind of that it seemed that developed. I wonder if you could talk about uh, that sort of that depiction that you unearthed. And that's just so fascinating to me to be looking in 2020 and have this image of this little evening party zone in this place. Well, and and here's the thing is that I've also, you know, I've done enough archaeology. I can tell you, I know where the party spots are, (laughs) um, you know, for like the last 10,000 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, really when people have parties, there's a bunch of stuff that happens and there's physical evidence of it. Um, 
And uh, so uh, we had a, in one block, it was actually the first garden that we ever excavated. It's in the public space of this, of this block. Um, so it's a, and it's a garden that I've really realized had like probably two lives. It had like during the day, because one of the first artifacts that we found was this cute little plastic barrette, like a little girl's barrette. Oh. Um, and we have pictures of families in this garden. Um, that we that we found later on that somebody who found out we were interested in that garden actually sent us pictures from his scrapbook. Um, but then we also found um, so we'd heard that um, from a, someone who had been a, like a, a young teenager in the block that his block, which was mostly people from L.A., had lots of single women who had been independent and had been like waitresses and had like lived the life in LA and they were urban and savvy and cosmopolitan and they smoked cigarettes and threw parties. And um, we, and it, it was the very next weekend after I'd heard that story that we're excavating in this garden and we come across this vial of blood red fingernail polish. Uh-huh. And all I could think of was like the ladies of 9L, like hanging out in the garden, oh doing their God. nails and having a party. I and we it. also found evidence of, and it's probably like the last party yeah. at um, in this block, but we found the base to a sake jug. We found a couple of cups that were appropriate for sake drinking. And they had been there and they were like right at the base of this tree that provided shade to like the 9L party spot. That is so, it's so beautiful to think about. I mean, I know it's, it's a traumatic time, but to think about these, this beautiful story and this party and how we can kind of glimpse into it and even find nail polish. That's just amazing. Do you have any um, favorite, I mean, that's probably a favorite story, but do you have any other kind of stories or areas that, that sort of have that type of feel to them? Well, um, so one of my uh, really favorite things was that we found the foundation to what we thought was probably an ofuro, which is a traditional Japanese bathing tub. So it's like a hot tub. So you're clean before you get into it. But then there's an area where you kind of undress and you wash and then you get into this tub. And um, so because we had this foundation and it was full of, of coal. Um, which is what you would use to sort of heat the, but I, but then I did a bunch of work. Actually, um, I got to go to Hawaii (laughs) (laughs) because there's such a, um, you know, a huge concentration of Japanese um, Hawaiian sites. And, um, and it was a place where I could go and see what these kinds of the foundations for these traditional tubs would look like. Um, so I found some that were working. And then I also found some at some archaeological on some plantation sites. And so I knew that what we needed to have was a place to get underneath there and clean that coal out, if that's what we really had. Um, and so which we actually found the very last day in the field, which was fantastic. But we clearly like one area had all the coal, like bigger chunks. And it also had cool things like um, like bottle caps. And we found a little piece of a cup and um and like bobby pins and stuff so it was like the little stuff that you would lose so basically people are sitting in the tub and they're drinking a coca-cola or um you know uh having a little snack and then um and then we in the area next it was more just sort of like the ash that kind of had flowed out from there and then we found this bundle of toiletries 
And this, you know, kind of soaking in these tubs is very traditional. It goes back, um, you know, thousands of years in Japan. It was something that rural families in particular, many of them didn't have running water. Um, and so this was an important place where people could kind of soak and have some family time and um, or even some me time. And so as we were working with that, um, we had two amazing things happen. One was that a gentleman who is a professional photographer and who was a little kid in camp. I was about to kind of explain to my crew how a photo works. And he just jumped in and he like my pantomimed the whole thing. Like, here's where you stand and here's where you wash off. And then you get in the tub and then he pointed out something that I'd really been puzzling about, but I didn't know the answer to, which was that there were two different materials that were used for the foundation. And he says, I think that you needed this stronger area over here to, to hold the weight of the tub. And this other was a less robust foundation. And that could have just held like where the dressing area. Wow. Um, and then it was, and that was totally how it turned out because then when we dug, we found the toiletries in the area that he predicted. And we, you know, found all the big chunks of the charcoal in the other. Um, and then one night we sat down to talk about Oforos with, uh, we had four volunteers um, that summer, uh, four other volunteers who had been um, in camp as little kids. And one of them remembered being in a furo with her mother and her auntie and that it was open to the air and they sat there and they looked at the stars. And she said it was this really pleasant experience and a kind of bonding experience. And when she talked about that, it's like suddenly all the work that had gone into making that made sense to us. And it's also, you know, there are not many moments that people look back on that were like really super pleasant moments in camp. Right. And we were able to help her kind of reclaim that. Um, and she helped us confirm that in fact, there, we should be finding those out the site because she remembers being soaking in one of these tubs. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you for that story. I'd love to get into the community aspect of it, um, when we come back, but it's already time for our next musical moment. Um, I have another song for you. Um, this song is called Miraloy, uh, and the artist is Christos Zotos, Z-O-T-O-S. Check it out. See what you think. You are listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back. So that song, it was called Miraloy, um, and the artist is Christos Zotos. And just a reminder that um, if you're interested in any of the music that you hear on the Apex Hour, uh, on our website, scu.edu slash Apex, uh, we have a played on Apex Hour Spotify list. So all the songs that I've played on the show are there. And it's a, a open public playlist that you can subscribe to and check out all the new music. Um, you can also find all of the information about our events there. So that's stu.edu slash apex. Welcome back into the studio, Dr. Bonnie Clark. Thanks. All right. Well, I want to talk about um, some of the community aspect. Uh, you talk about how this is kind of a new way of looking at archaeology. We think about um, archaeology as going way back in the past, but you're very much dealing with a, a living history, a le- living, breathing history, um, and, and people who were there or had family members there, and that that has kind of changed uh, things for you. So I'd love for you to get into a little bit um, the community aspect and what that means for this project. I know your volunteers tend to be family members and you really want uh, people to come back uh, to to the place. And I, I wonder if you could just talk about all of that aspect of it. Well, um, I have to admit that, uh, and this is where, you know, starting a project like this by going out and talking to people about, um, you know, why this place matters and, and what about it matters um, made us, you know, we connected to lots of people who cared about this place. And, and the gentleman that I was talking about earlier, Gary Ono, the photographer, um, he was volunteering at the Japanese American National Museum in, in Los Angeles. And I was there for a community meeting and somebody uh, told Gary that I was there and he came and found me and he said, I was at Amachi as a little boy and I'm a photographer. Would you like, can I come out and take pictures for you? Wow. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I was really kind of surprised. I mean, I didn't expect it um, really because, you know, I'd been at these meetings where everybody was talking about how terrible camp was, right. You know, it's hot and it's dry and it's windy. And, and, you know, and we knew that we'd been taken from our homes and it was hard and it was stressful, you know? Um, and I thought, why would anybody want to come back? Yeah. And, um, but Gary wanted to come and he asked if he could bring his grandson. And I was like, wow, that's great. And so 
And then, um, so to see that intergenerational, because by bringing his grand, and so uh, Gary's been back twice with two different grandsons oh. and, um, and watching that because when Gary was telling us about how the Fura worked, he's also telling his grandson, right? He's sharing this, his, this heritage with him. And there's this concept in anthropology about both tangible and intangible heritage. Mm-hmm. So when I do archaeology, I'm finding tangible heritage. But when you're doing it with a community, you're also eliciting that intangible heritage that makes the tangible make much more sense and um, just enriches it and gives it more um, we understand its significance and its use so much more. And so I really like being able to do work where we're, we're kind of can do that iterative thing and where we find things in the field and then it raises questions and then we ask our community and then our community comes back and maybe they have different, you know, ideas and, and we continue to kind of have that happen. So the community aspect of it is really important. Um, it's just been so valuable for us. And um, it's been valuable for our partners. And I think it's why they keep coming back, why they bring their kids, why they send their grandkids to come work with us. Um, And uh, because, again, this is a heritage. I mean, many people just wanted to put it behind them. Um, It is embarrassing, basically, to have to be singled out. And, um, you know, and and many um, Japanese Americans were like, you know, it it happened and we just don't want to talk about it. So there was sort of a generation that didn't talk about it. Being able to go back and experience that place allows them. So, you know, I I don't know, like the, the horror movies that scare me the most are the ones where you really never see the monster, right? right? It's just like whatever scary thing is in your head. And so folks get to come and they get to kind of slay those dragons a little bit because Uh, it like life was hard, but it was also life, you know, kids drank, kids sat in a, in a hot tub and drank Coca-Cola and they played basketball against each other and they fell in love and they grew gardens. And to sort of see that resiliency that we see in the ground, it, it helps people and it reminds them how strong their community is. Fantastic. Wow. And I imagine that there's that sharing with the next generation too. So, you know, it was a generation that maybe didn't speak about it, but through this work and through um, the the gentle treatment of, of this land by you and your team, it, it sounds like people are able to kind of come and start dealing with those memories and maybe even sharing them. And I think you told one story about somebody understanding their family even better, having seen that place. Um, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that sharing, that multi-generational sharing, and then something you were speaking about, about place-based memory and how, how, how memory is triggered in these places and what you've experienced with that. Yes. So, um, uh, the uh, memory that I shared about being in the Ofuro, um, uh, that one of our volunteers kind of being out there and we we're talking about it. And it was really being out there that she, that it came to her. And um, I, um, so I've done a little bit of research. And uh, so essentially when we, when something happens, the place that it happens is, um, is part of the, the frame for it in our, in our brain. And if we don't ever get back to that place, it's sometimes hard to remember that thing. But when you're back there, these sort of memories can come flooding back in. And I've seen it happen time and time again. And it's really, really powerful. And so um, 
And so for people to sort of, you know, this kind of shadowed, whispered past for them to be out there and to say, yes, this happened. This is where my family was. It's this spot. And grandma planted that tree and it was real. It happened. Um, And so it's, so it's powerful for the people who were there and it's powerful for the people who weren't there, but who are either maybe for the first time they're hearing their grandpa or grandpa talk about uh, life in camp um, and so I do see, I see a lot that when we get multiple generations out there, I see that share that sharing. Yeah. And, um, so, um, you know, the folks who were there or who heard stories of camp are sharing those with the younger generations. And then if those young folks are the, the like the volunteers or the interns that have been working for us, then they also have learned new things that then they get to share with their family, which is really cool. And so they can talk about, say, like, here's this. Um, so there's a, um, a sort of strategy game called Go. And we often find the little Go tokens. And wow. so, you know, I remember one of our volunteers um our high school volunteers uh, like showing this to her grandma, like, look, look, we found where go happened. It was right under the shade tree. And tell me about your volunteer force. Uh, it's a lot of high school, college students, and particularly of, of, of Japanese American descent uh, with family, I mean, directly connected to this place. Is that yeah, so we have, and I have to say, uh, it's been supported both through some states, through the uh, grants, through the, um, uh, History Colorado, um, the State Historical Fund, but also through individual donors from the Japanese American community who feel really strongly. So um, we, uh, so some of our uh, crew members are actually there. They are interns and they're being paid to be there. So we either pay them or we pay their tuition, and they can take it as a class. And so, um, and we have like at least one of those set aside every year, one for a local high school student who lives in the town of Grenada and goes to Grenada High. Um, And then we have one that's earmarked for um, uh, descendants of um, high schoolers who are descended from uh, people who were Adamachi. And um, the last few years, we've actually been able, we've recruited even more folks. And then I've been able to go back to my community members and say, I would really like to be able to hire everybody and I've been able to do that, which is great. Oh, um, wow. And so these um, students, they do really great work. They often, again, because they're there, then then during our pub, our you know community open house day, when we invite members of the Machu community to come, they often then that's when we see their older relatives will come and join them. So we might have, you know, and so these uh, kids get to again share what they've learned with their family, and their family shares with them. Um, and then, of course, there's lots of other people around, too. Um, and so uh, so that we've got those folks. And then um, I've got my college students, you know, some of which come from my own university and others that come from universities all over the country. Uh, then we've got graduate students who are doing their thesis work. Um, I've got volunteers who so I asked my volunteers to come for at least a week um, because so that we can get them trained up. Um, and so, um, those volunteers, um, are sometimes, you know, second, um, or third generation. Um, and then we have volunteers who are again, camp survivors. Uh, and we've just been lucky. We have these two ladies who have been with us for five field seasons Wow! and, you know, it's so fun to have them there. And uh, one of the things that, that is great is that, 
Um, we get to learn um, about living tradition too, right? And one of the, the most fun things is that every year on the 4th of July, one of these ladies teaches all of my crew how to make Spam sushi. Oh. So we make like a, just a massive amount of Spam sushi wow. uh, and feed the whole crew. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, and the work is ongoing, right? It's not, this is not a project that's complete. You are still going to be out there doing it and you have a lot more to discover, it sounds like. Oh, uh, we sure do. Cool. Well, as our time kind of comes to a close, it's it's zoomed by. Uh, and I would love to give you a chance to talk about your new book that's coming out. Um, so I'd love for you to tell our audience a bit about it and and where they can find it and um, and and the depth of it, because it really sounds like it, it can appeal to so many different interests. Oh, well, thank you. So um, the book is uh, going to be it's uh, it's available for pre-order already. It's called Finding Solace in the Soil, an Archaeology of Gardens and Gardeners at Amachi. And it's the University Press of Colorado, um, which is actually associated with the Utah State University Press, oh, too. Right. Um, and uh, so it is a book that draws together from these, you know, kind of community memories and, and photos that people have shared with us of gardens uh, it brings in the archaeology, so that soil analysis that I talked about, but also, you know, what we find from the pollen and what we find from the seeds of plants. Um, and it brings in some of the history of Japanese gardens going all the way back to sort of where, where did the first Japanese gardens come from and uh, to kind of think about their spiritual import and, uh, and then I've got a lot of archival data um, about, you know, what people's professions were and, you know, how we can think about what is it different if you have a bunch of nurse, you know, people who know how to pl grow plants in your block, as opposed to people who are all farmers. And um, so I bring in um, some of that information and kind of try to weave it all together into this story. Um, and I even have for people who are, you know, gardeners and are interested in that, I have a a list at the back of all the different plants that we found at Amachi. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, people could grow their own Amachi inspired garden after they read this. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's to. so cool. I mean, that's what's really cool. It, it's really going deep into the gardening, uh, the gardens of Amachi, but also Japanese garden history. And, and just, it's a, a great way to look into this landscape. So, and uh, we'll put a link to it on our website as well. Um, and it's coming out really soon. You must be so excited about that. Oh, I am. And I'm mostly excited because, you know, I've had some of these um, of my community members who I've spent a long time talking with and, and people who spent actually a lot of time reading the manuscript and giving me feedback. And I'm just going to be so excited to um, be able to give them a, a copy, a signed copy of the book. So that's the thing I'm, I'm most excited about is to get it back to get this uh, history back to the people who were so generous to share their stories with me. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I always close by asking a, a silly question. Well, it's not silly, but it's just kind of a, uh, off topic question. And I'll, uh, it's just basically something that's turning you on this week. Uh, and so it can be anything. It can be a book you're reading. It could be a TV show. It could be a movie. It could be a favorite food that you've been eating. It could be a high, it could be anything at all, but it's just kind of a little extra personal insight for our guests. So Dr. Bonnie Clark, what's turning you on this week? 
Uh, I am loving the fall colors. Uh-huh. Uh, I actually just, cause you know, I did my a- the apex event and then in between there, I went and I got on my bike and I rode around the neighborhood oh, and nice. there, the, I don't know what it's like in um, Cedar right now, but here in Denver, um, the colors are just right at their peak. And it was just, just beautiful, especially to see the, the sun stream through the colors and the way they light up. It just, um, it, it, it makes my heart light. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, what a beautiful way to end. Your last slide in your presentation was a sunset with beautiful colors. So we're ending with a beautiful image of fall colors. So on that note, I would love to just say thank you to you for doing the show with me. I learned so much. Thank you for your time today and your awesome presentation. I've learned so much about Amachi and about your work and about the community building that can come through an archaeological project. That's been fantastic. And we'll put up all the links on our website and you can find more about Dr. Clark's work on our website in in about a week or so. We'll have her archive page put up. So thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Well, and likewise, I'm I'm so enjoyed my virtual visit. Um, I sure wish I could be there in person. I love Cedar. It's a great town. So uh, good job on choosing such a great school, you guys. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We will see you very soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.